Yeah, so the reading is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and it can be found on page 1032 of the Church Bibles. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding round him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signalled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Thanks so much uh, for reading for us, Hannah. Keep uh, your Bibles open if you've got them in front of you. Um, let's pray as we come to the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, we see in these verses the clear focus on the Lord Jesus, how Peter's whole body and mind was fixed upon Christ at the moment he saw that miracle. We pray, gracious God, that by your spirit you would help us this morning to be fixed upon Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, People sometimes talk about mission creep, don't they? You know, you, you, you have a plan, you have an agenda, uh, you set off to do it, and before you know it, you're trying to do a thousand other things. I think actually, being a parent, every day you, you experience that kind of mission creep. Today we're going to go to the beach. Okay, brilliant. You need to go and get some spades. You go to the shed, discover that you can't find the spades, so you have to reorganize the whole shed so you can get the spades. Then you start packing and you realize that they've lost their swimming trunks. And then you've got to go to the shop and you've got to buy some more swimming trunks. And more and more things happen and you never actually make it to the beach. They're all important things, but, but you've lost your mission. I'm sure you know what it's like in the workplace as well. Well, there's, there's something of that, I, I think, here in, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Last week, Jesus came very clearly and said, this is what I'm about. I've come to proclaim good news. And straight away, there is this pull on Jesus, this push as well on Jesus by the crowds, by different people that he meets, all asking him good things. And the question is, is Jesus going to be able to keep on his mission to save sinners and proclaim good news? 
That's what we're going to think about first of all, is Jesus in control? That's our first point. If you were here last week, you would have known that Jesus' popularity is growing and growing all the time. That there is something magnetic about Jesus. His presence, his teaching, people are drawn to him. 5 verse 1, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Something very powerful about Jesus as a person. People cannot stay away. They want to see more, they want to hear more, so they crowd around him. And you've got to marvel, haven't you, at Jesus' kind of patience here and his kindness Have you ever been in a situation where loads of people are trying to get your attention, asking you questions, demanding you speak to them all at once? If not, you're very welcome to join us for a Clifton family dinner. From the moment we sit down, there's Elijah telling me about his latest Stone Age tool that he's been making in the garden. I don't know why he's making Stone Age tools, but he is. And Eliza gets going with a long-winded story about the kind of house that she wants to, to live in. Lara starts playing the piano. India's trying to make herself heard. And then Elijah gets up to use the toilet. And you think, mercy, <laughs> a bit of quiet. But no, he's still rabbiting on with the toilet door open, trying to get you to hear him. And, and all this noise... Am I picturing it well enough? Can you feel the stress building up inside you? All this noise, it's an assault on your mind. All these conversations, I imagine it's the same in a classroom, in a busy workplace. The people were crowding around Jesus. But he doesn't scream, enough, stop, give me some rest. No, verse 2. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Jesus keeps teaching. He finds a way to make himself heard over the noise and the questions because he loves people. This is our God, full of kindness. He listens, he cares, he answers their questions, he responds to their concerns. And that is definitely going on in these verses. But there is something a bit odd and different about the word for crowded around him. It's a very rare word and there's something negative about it. It means to press upon to demand incessantly, to seize. The only other time it comes up in Luke's gospel is Luke 23, when the crowd are impressing or pressing upon Jesus so that he might be crucified. You see, the people crowded around Jesus is also the people pressing upon Jesus. It's also the people imposing themselves upon Jesus. And so it raises a question, is Jesus really in control of his mission and agenda? Is he in the driving seat or is he just reacting to the demands of the crowds around him? There is always that temptation with Jesus, isn't there? To impose our agenda upon Jesus, to try and mold and shape Jesus according to our priorities, what we think matters. So you have political Jesus. Jesus would be a Republican. Jesus would be a socialist. Che Guevara, Jesus. Or there's environmental Jesus. If Jesus were here now, that would be his big thing. Saving the planet, solar panels, wind farms, going carbon zero. 
or nationalist Jesus. People try and capture Jesus for their nation or refugee Jesus or or whatever. There's always this temptation to make Jesus fit our priorities and our agenda. And some of those things are obviously hugely significant and Jesus does care about them. But throughout history, we are always trying to mold Jesus into what we think he should be about. Like the crowd imposing themselves on Jesus, we do the same. And so the question is, is Jesus really in control of his mission? Is he setting the agenda or is there mission creep? Is he responding and reacting too much to the crowds? Well, what happens next is a miracle, but it is also a parable. This miraculous catch of fish is pointing to something else. It is about something else. The growth of Jesus' kingdom and the accomplishment of Jesus' mission. Let's see that. Secondly, Jesus will accomplish his mission. So eventually, Jesus stops teaching. He's been at it all morning. He's he's still in the boat with Peter. And he says to Peter, let's sail out into the middle of the lake and do a bit of fishing. Verse 4. Put out into the deep water and, and let down the nets for a catch. Jesus seems to want to go fishing. Never seen the attraction in it myself, but, but he says, let's go out, let's do some fishing. And you, you've got to love Peter's reaction to this. Because you can tell that he's using every muscle in his body not to say to Jesus, don't be ridiculous. Why? Because first, fishing back then, it, it would happen at night. You don't go out in the day. The fish can see the nets. Second, Peter and his crew have been out fishing all night. They've caught nothing. There are no fish around. The fish are on holiday. They're not there. Third, Jesus is a carpenter. Wood is his thing, not fish. So you can imagine what Peter wanted to say, verse 5. Master, are you mad? What do you know about fishing? We've been out all night and caught nothing. But instead, he uses all the reserves of politeness. And he says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. And he checks himself, but because you say so, we'll let down our nets. So begrudgingly, Peter takes the boat out and probably in a half-hearted, this is never going to work kind of way, he throws the nets over the side of the boat. But then immediately, there is the sound of flapping and splashing and hundreds of fish being caught. So many that the nets are full. So many that they have to call others for help. Verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. It turns out that Jesus isn't just a carpenter. He knows a thing or two about fish as well. But of course, this isn't luck. This is divine power. This is a miracle. And Peter sees that. It's why he falls on his knees in verse 8 and calls Jesus Lord. Up until this moment in Luke's gospel, Lord has ever only referred to God. It was divine knowledge that steered the boats to where the fish were, or it was divine power that steered the fish to where the boats would be. Either way, Jesus is not lucky here. He is the divine son of God who rules over all creation, including 
the fish. But this isn't really about fish, is it? No. See, just as Jesus is able to miraculously steer fish into those nets, so he is miraculously able to steer men and women into his kingdom. What does Jesus say to Peter at the end? Verse 10, from now on, you will fish for men. So this miracle isn't about catching fish. It is about catching men and women. It is showing us that Jesus will accomplish his mission. He will capture men and women for his kingdom. And it actually starts with Peter. You see, while Peter and his crew are catching fish in nets, Jesus is catching Peter and his crew for the kingdom. Look how Luke describes their reaction in verse 9. For he, that's Peter, and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish. It's a little bit annoying here. Our translation hides something. That, that word astonishing means more like seized or were enclosed or were captured. So he and all his companions were seized by the catch of fish. See, Peter and the others, they were being seized by Jesus as they were seizing fish. Their hearts were captivated, their souls locked on to him. From that moment on, they belonged to Jesus. That day on the lake of Gennesaret, Jesus was not just catching fish. He was catching people. The gospel that he spent all morning proclaiming and teaching. And, and the gospel that Peter and his companions were listening to all morning. Jesus was on Peter's boat as he preached. That gospel was gripping their hearts, taking hold of them and capturing them for Christ. Now I guess we don't often think about salvation in those terms, do we? We don't often say, oh, to be saved is to be captured by Christ. And maybe we don't like that. Maybe we don't like the idea of being likened to a fish. Fish are, are pretty dumb. Certainly the fish we had growing up, round and round they go. They don't seem to have much self-determination. But actually, this is a brilliant picture of salvation. When Jesus saves us, he captures us. He captures our hearts. We know this in a in a vague way, in other ways, don't we? If you fall in love, it can feel as though your heart has been captured, can't it? As though someone's stolen your heart. That's the kind of language we use, isn't it? And it's kind of like that with Jesus, but, but not quite. With Jesus, it's more like falling on your knees before him. It's more like Peter in verse 8. It's more like surrendering your life to Jesus. When Jesus saves us, he captures our hearts. And when Jesus captures us, he liberates us. I know that sounds odd at first, doesn't it? A fish caught in a net doesn't sound very free. But Jesus is not capturing us into nets. He is capturing us into his kingdom. A kingdom of forgiveness. A kingdom of renewal and restoration where all our humanity is restored. 
And when Jesus captures us, he's always capturing us out of the hands of some other tyrant. Because this is true, isn't it? If Jesus hasn't captivated our hearts, well, something else has. Some other ideology, some other system of thought we have to comply with, some other God, some other opinion of others, some impossible standard of beauty that we feel we have to match and maintain. We're caught in someone's net or something's net, captured by something. The difference with Jesus is that his capture leads to life. His lordship leads to freedom. Helmut Romer was a Nazi soldier and he was captured when the Allies invaded in, on, on D-Day in northern France. And he later recalled in an interview with the BBC his surrender and capture. He said something very profound. It would be on the screen. He said, it was a defeat for us. But at the same time, it was a liberation. Germany was defeated, but it was liberated from its own madness. Jesus captures us. He liberates us. So yes, Jesus is capturing men and women for his kingdom. He is casting his net as his word is preached, and men and women are being caught up in it. He saves us by capturing our hearts, and it is a capture that liberates as we enter into his kingdom. So what was going on that morning on the lake of Gennesaret? Well, the crowd were imposing themselves upon Jesus, trying to get Jesus to fit to their agenda, their concerns. What was actually going on though? Jesus was preaching. He was accomplishing his mission. He was capturing men and women through the power of his word into his kingdom. Jesus will accomplish his mission. But finally, Jesus accomplishes his mission through us. So yes, Jesus was absolutely responsible for that miraculous catch of fish. But he didn't actually do the catching, did he? It was Peter and and the others who threw the nets over and hauled them back in. And of course, the same is true when it comes to capturing men and women for the kingdom of God. Yes, Jesus is absolutely responsible. It is a miracle every time someone puts their faith in Christ. But he uses us to accomplish that miracle. And as we look at Peter's response to Jesus, we see the kind of people he uses. First, they are Christ-exalting. So when Peter gives the command to drop the nets, immediately, verse 6, there is madness and chaos on the boats. Listen, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Can you imagine the commotion and the noise? I hate uh, small boats, um, kind of rowing boats, those kind of things. Not, not a fan of it at all. I've done some punting in, in Cambridge a couple of times, and both times a, a disaster, really. One friend, if you've done this, they made that terrible mistake of holding on to the punt when the punt was stuck in the riverbed, and the boat moved away, but they and the punt stayed hovering over the water until splash, they fell in. But, but anyone gets up, anyone moves, and the whole boat is rocking back and forth and back and forth. 
Nothing enjoyable about that. So imagine what it must have been like in these fishing boats. The nets are full to bursting. The boat's dangerously listening, listening to one side. They, they can't shout to their, their friends to help because they can't be heard. So they're, sing, they're waving. More movement, more kind of back and forth on the boat. It's madness and it is chaos. But what is Peter doing amidst all of that? Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. In the madness and chaos, Peter falls on his knees before Jesus. At that moment, there is nothing more important for Peter than Jesus Christ. Sometimes you get those shots in a movie where where the main character is in a battle or a war, and they remain clear. But, But all the action around them is blurry and it's out of focus. That is what it's like for Peter at this moment. Jesus is the only thing in focus. The madness and the chaos of the boat rocking and the nets breaking and the men shouting, it is all blurred. The only thing that matters to Peter is this person in front of him, Jesus Christ. More precious than this huge haul of fish, more important than keeping the boats afloat and getting his crew safely back is Jesus. Peter in this moment is Christ exulting. And I wonder whether we would be the same. In the madness and chaos of our life, the busyness, the pressures, the opportunities, the worries over money, over sickness, the sadnesses that we go through, the stresses and the demands. What is our instinct when we feel these things toppling in on top of us? Is it Jesus? Is it to fall on our knees, spiritually speaking, or even literally, and fix our hearts upon Christ? Or does Jesus come second? Is our instinct to try and resolve the madness and chaos first? Do we look elsewhere for help? Do we wait until it's a quieter moment? Who is Jesus looking for? People like Peter who instinctively, regardless of what is going on around, see the priority of Christ, have their hearts and their minds fixed on Jesus. People who are Christ-exalting. Secondly, the kind of people Jesus uses are those who are self-humbling. Again, listen to Peter's response in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. See, Peter sees the miraculous catch of fish and he works out very quickly who Jesus is. You are the Lord. And he also works out very quickly who he is. I am a sinner. A desperate sinner. Someone who has failed to honour God in his life. A sinner who cannot stand falls on his knees. A sinner who cannot exist in the presence of God. Go away from me, Jesus. I know in our time we don't like to beat ourselves up too much. We don't like to dwell on the negatives in our life. We we worry about the impact it it might have on our mental health or our self-esteem And absolutely, we can be sometimes overly introspective, can't we? But notice, Jesus does not correct Peter. He doesn't say, Peter, you're being too harsh. Peter, you've got some great qualities. Just need to tell you about those great qualities. No. The truth is, left to ourselves, we are desperate sinners before Jesus. But wonderfully, they are the kind of people that Jesus uses. People who know that about themselves. 
People like Peter who are self-humbling, who know that the death of Jesus means the love of Jesus for them. People who know the depth of Christ's mercy and kindness. People who know that they can only stand in the presence of God because of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter is self-humbling before Christ. And even if we've been a Christian a long time, we need to remember something of that. Our desperate need for Christ. The 16th century preacher and theologian Martin Luther put it like this. It's going to sound very strong, but let me read it to you. It's on the screen. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger. Now, he doesn't mean go out and sin. That's not what he's saying. He means be honest. Stop pretending that you are better than you are. Be open about your sin before the Lord. Because what you probably do is what I probably do. When I fear I'm in trouble about something, what's my response? What's your response? It's probably to look for excuses. To think of all the ways in which it's not really my fault. Peter doesn't do that with Christ. And nor should we. Don't come to Jesus with excuses. Don't blame others. Don't blame circumstances. Jesus knows all of that anyway. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Be honest about your sin before the Lord. And then you will be humble. And you will know the joy of his salvation and the depth of his love. And you'll be useful. Because when we are Christ-exalting and self-humbling, then we are useful to Jesus. Because our lives become reordered around his agenda. Verse 10. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. It's great, as we said, Jesus doesn't correct Peter. Yes, Peter, I know you are a sinner, but nor does Jesus reject Peter. Instead, what does he say? Don't be afraid. Just a moment here, it's brilliant, isn't it? Jesus knows the worst about Peter, he knows the worst about us, but he does not reject us if we come to him admitting our sin. There is no greater love than this kind of love, to know the worst about someone and to still accept them. Don't be afraid. The one who knows the worst about us is the one who died to save us. Don't be afraid. And to prove to Peter and to us that he has nothing to fear, Jesus says, rest of verse 10, from now on you will fish for people, for men. Jesus brings Peter into his service. You see, who are the kind of people that Jesus uses? It is those who are Christ-exalting and self-humbling because it's those kind of people who reorder their lives around the agenda and the mission of Christ. So verse 11, they pulled up their boats onto shore, left everything and followed him. They left everything. Just had the biggest haul of fish in their lives. They leave it all behind. They reorder their lives around Jesus and his mission and his agenda. They are the kind of people that Jesus uses. Someone who is Christ-exalting and self-humbling, they know that, Jesus, you get to set the agenda for my life. You get to set the mission, not me. 
They're the kind of people who say, of course, Jesus, your priority for mission, because mission is the thing here, isn't it? Your priority for mission, well, that's got to be my priority as well. And yes, mission is the thing here, but it's broader than that, isn't it? Living for Jesus and speaking for Jesus, that becomes our mission. It is that, but it's more than that. Jesus' agenda for home life and for ethics. Jesus' agenda for marriage and for work and for money. All of it has to become my agenda now. For those who are Christ-exalting and self-humbling. Even if that means leaving everything behind. A great haul of fish. Or a carefree and easy life. Or being loved and liked and respectable in the view and eyes of others or making a name for ourselves, or wealth. If we are putting the agenda of Jesus first, then some of those things are going to have to be left behind. So the Christ-exalting, self-humbling, is the one who reorders their whole life around Jesus and his mission. That's why they're so useful to him. They pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything. And they followed him. So Jesus came to earth with a mission. To proclaim good news to us. To offer salvation. To bring people into his kingdom. And nothing will push him off that mission. And wonderfully he calls us to be part of it. Those who are Christ exalting, self humbling, willing to reorder their lives around Christ. Moment of quiet, and then I'm going to pray. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Heavenly Father, we can all put those words in our mouth. We stand before you this morning and we know that we are sinful. And yet we also know the deep love of Christ. We know about his death on our behalf. We know how our sin was set upon him and so was our judgment. We know how he, through his righteous life, has given us his righteousness. That we might stand before you this morning without fear. Heavenly Father, you have captured our hearts. And we pray that through us, as your gospel is preached and proclaimed, you would capture the hearts of countless other men and women. We ask this for the sake of your glory. Amen.